When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations. You have found the Internet's finest podcast for music with 17 different origin stories. Uh, We're going to do trivia here in a second, but first we have kind of a big announcement to make. We are fortunate enough to be able to join the Pantheon Music Podcast Network. This is a big deal to us. We're very excited about it. It's now going to push our podcast out to thousands more potential listeners and that's what we've really been wanting since we started it we love doing this it's a lot of fun and we want more people to be able to hear it because we do think a lot of people would hopefully enjoy it as much as we enjoy making it and and again the other thing that we we were excited about pantheon is that they really liked the show you know i think they generally were interested we kind of help fill a niche as they're trying to get a full expansive look at the history of rock and roll. It started with rock and roll archaeology and that they wanted to expand and have lots of different facets of music history. And uh, apparently we were just weird enough to kind of fit into a small section of that. But they like the show. They don't want us to change the format. I've been assured that I don't have to start pronouncing words correctly. Joe can still do his um, famous impressions. And there will still be a uh, very high likelihood that we will make fun of Billy Joel and or the Eagles in every episode. Uh, That was in our writer. And I want to thank Morris from Love That Album podcast and the See Here podcast for putting in a good word with Pantheon for us, which was really, really great of him. He's a wonderful guy and everybody should listen to their podcasts. Absolutely. Went on a went out on a limb for us. We appreciate that. So, all right. So let's go ahead and get on with the show and do a little bit of trivia. I'm going to go first today with the audio quiz, and my quiz is going to consist of seven clips of music. And what I would like to have you do is name the original song so what i will be playing will be covers okay and the original artist who actually started them and as people may know from probably the title of the episode we're doing an episode on first wave ska so what i'll be playing with a lot of these will be ska versions of classic pop songs all right so here we go track one in the little tent Track two. Now I'm through with romance. I'm through with love. 
track three. Track four. Track five. How do you feel about that? Um, I've got some, but there's a couple I I don't have any idea. So, you're going to play them again at the end? I will be playing these again at the end, so you'll have a chance to hear them one more time. Although, you can probably rewind and listen to them again, if you would like to do that, if your pod catcher allows for that. <laughs> you got one of those fancy kind that go backwards. All right. Are you ready for my trivia? I doubt it. Okay. So, Joe and I did not want to talk about uh, the horrible third wave of ska, and so we're not going to. But we do get to talk about how horrible the band names are. And so this quiz is called Terrible Ska Band Names. And so I'm going <laughs> to okay. read you a list of ska band names, and you just need to tell me if they're a real ska band or something that is made up. Either I found it on the internet or I made it up myself. Here we go. Okay. <clears throat> Alaska. Fake. That is real. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm in for a long <laughs> quiz. Arkansas. Fake. <laughs> that is fake. Baked Alaska. Real. <laughs> No, that one's fake. Battleska, Galactic Ska. Fake. That is fake. Brian Scadams. What? Oh, oh, now I, I didn't get it, Brian. Okay, okay. I will say that is real. That is fake. Oh, that would be so good. <laughs> Flux Capacitors. Real? That is that is a real band. Okay. Chris, Chris Kerskoffson. 
<laughs> can't even, you can't even say it. <laughs> Chris Christofferson. Fake. That is fake. <laughs> Lukibi Scott. Wait, what? <laughs> Was there another one that you said? Yeah, I did. I did. Here we go. Lukimi Ska. What is it? <laughs> I can't understand what you're saying. Speak up. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> Leukemia Ska. Leuke- like, like <laughs> leukemia? <laughs> leukemia Ska, yeah. You wouldn't make that up. I think that's that's something you wouldn't do. I'm going to go real on that. That's fake. You made up a leukemia joke? <laughs> no, internet did. Oh, my my stars and garters. <laughs> you may just have to cut that one out. Wow, no. <laughs> no. You made, up a, you made a joke about leukemia. How Not a joke, you? it's just a fake man. Osama bin Laden. That's real. That's got to be real. Mesoscopheles. Real. That is real. Skalala. Sounds real. I'm going to go real on that, too. That is fake. Oh, that's a good one. Skamikaze. Real. That is totally real. Skaba the Hut. Fake. That is real. Really? Uh-huh. Did you look into the, any of these bands? Do they actually just play things from the cantina, or...? <laughs> There's. Uh, I looked into... Some of them I verified, just to make sure I just wasn't totally making it up. Now, some of them are like, they're real in the sense that they have a band camp... You know, but most of them are pretty bad. Scottish. Real. That's fake. I'm getting killed. Scenarial disease. Fake. That is fake. Scanado. Real. That's fake. I'm not going to be able to pronounce this one. Scarcrow. Scarcrow? <laughs> Scarcrow. Like scarecrow. Yeah, I, I, I got that. <laughs> you know, with a K instead of a C. Oh, oh, like Ska. Scarcrow. Like Ska, but a Scarecrow. Yes, exactly. Now I get it. Um, I I don't think you would do that. I'm going to, well, I'm going to go fake. That is fake. Okay. I did it. Scarotum. <laughs> Could you repeat that one? <laughs> Loudly and proudly? <laughs> Scarotum. Fake. That is real. <laughs> oh, man. The Skashank Redemption. Fake. That is real, too. Man, you did terrible on that. I know. I'm just doing... Oh, the, oh is that it? That's it. Wow. Really got in your head on that one. Well, I've never heard of any of those, I don't think. Maybe... And nobody's ever heard of any of them, I don't think. Yeah. It seems like um, the third wave of Scott, the way I was putting it is... Did you ever see that Michael Keaton movie where he clones himself? Of course. But when you clone a clone, it, it turns out wrong. So third Wave Scott's kind of like that. It's a clone of a clone, and it's it's all messed up. All right, anyways, that was my uh, terrible ska band name quiz. Hopefully everybody at home did better than Joe. I think there are animals that could have done better than me on that one. <laughs> you, you almost got 50% right. <laughs> all right, after that mess... Why don't we move into Turntable Talk? Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind 
As we scour through music's lesser-known yet absolutely vital curios, oddballs, and obscurities, we find that we sometimes need to come up for air and take a look at larger and clearer links to uncovering the spawn points of our vinyl love. We've done this with Glam and Cosmic Country and Yeah Yeah and a few others. Today we tackle a genre that both of us have always enjoyed but neither of us knew much about, Ska. We're only going to be looking at the history of Ska during the 50s and 60s and won't be going into any of the great two-tone post-punk bands of the 70s, nor, as we mentioned, will we venture into the soulless death trap that is any Ska revival since. This will be a look at the major and minor players, the record labels, and some of the totally bonkers stories that may or may not be true, but certainly worth telling, of Ska's golden era, or the first wave. In the late 50s, the streets of Jamaica were lit with music. Bands would bang out jazz and rhythm and blues songs every night, catering to large crowds of people desiring only to dance all night. It was a disco, but outside in the streets, every night of the week, from dusk till dawn, like Mardi Gras and a discotheque cram into one big outdoor dance-off. However, there was a singular prevalent problem. The bands, they wanted breaks. And the breaks lasted too long and people just wanted to keep going at it. A compromise of sorts was agreed upon. A sound system would be brought in and allowed to play records during an intermission. No one knew it then, but this compromise would eventually be the end of those bands. A sound system is a mobile DJ setup with speakers that are big enough to sleep in and a turntable that's constantly spinning American records. When they took over the streets, crowds in the low thousands would come out and dance all night long. The entrepreneurs running the sound systems wisely sold food and beer and made a killing, like wedding DJs manning food trucks. In the mid-50s, there were two major players in the sound system, sound system game, Cox and Dodd and Duke Reed, and their rivalry was fierce to the point of being brutal. Reed's career started after he was fired by the Jamaican police force. He took his payout and bought a sound system, which he used to challenge then-sound system king Tom the Great Sebastian. When Reed won, Tom moved to another part of town. Reed dominated for a little while, but was then beaten by a much younger Dodd. Dodd had been traveling to America to get exclusive records, and he'd tear off the labels so that no one else would know what what the song was or who was playing on it. Dodd's number one song around that time was Later for the Gator by Willis Jackson. Duke Reed went to the U.S. to try to find that song so he could humiliate Dodd. He traveled all over the country listening to thousands upon thousands of singles until he finally came across the song in a record store in Philadelphia. Once back in Jamaica, Reed challenged Dodd, claiming that he could play all of Dodd's exclusives. On the night of the showdown, at midnight... Reed threw on Dodd's song, and Dodd allegedly fainted immediately. Reed was king again. The competition between the two remained fierce, with each stealing people from the other every night they could, offering money to leave the other's party to come to theirs. Both Dodd and Reed owned liquor stores, and Duke Reed even had his own rum that was only sold from his sound system. It was called Rude to Your Parents, as in... It will make you rude to your parents. The rum was so strong that after someone had two of them, Reed would send them staggering over to Dodd's to ruin his night with drunks. 
Reed also had a group of thugs he claimed were there for his protection. He'd been a cop and had too many enemies, he claimed. In actuality, they were hired to disrupt other sound systems. These dance crashers would go to other systems and start randomly punching, kicking, and even stabbing at dancers. They'd try to get all the way up to the system itself so that they could cut the wires and even steal records. Reed was a premier showman, wearing a crown and brandishing a shotgun on one hip and a forty-five on the other. He also allegedly played with live grenades while DJing, like Moby. Business was good. Dodd eventually was running five sound systems and would hire different DJs to run his music empire, including future stars Lee Scratch Perry, U. Roy, and Prince Buster. And he eventually even hired his mother, Doris Darlington. However, with this expansion, another issue arose, the need for more records. DJs like Reed and Dodd wanted to find the best R&B songs, and they wanted to find them before anyone else The way to get these records was to actually go to America. Americans needed cheap labor, mostly for cut and cane. Artists and fans, like Prince Buster, would go to the U.S., cut cane, and buy as many R&B singles as they could get their hands on. By the late 50s, Reed and Dodd started producing their own records of local bands. But these records weren't for sale. They were to draw people in because only one of them had these new amazing exclusive records. People had to be at their sound system to hear it. They only made one copy of each record, and the records rarely had any identifying marks on them, or if they did, they were only identifiable to the DJ. They were also pressed onto soft acetate for sound system use only. The record started with local bands playing Jamaican versions of American R&B songs, but soon they added other musical components from other traditions to the R&B songs, and refocus on the themes of the Jamaican lifestyle to create something entirely unique. Ska. It's crazy to think about how all these records are pressed that just must be lost in time since they weren't identified and they were on that soft acetate. Like, gosh, how many great records could there have been? And Duke Reed had those thugs going out and stealing records and I'm sure if he didn't like them, they probably just ended up in the garbage or maybe even never made it all the way back. Yeah, he may not even had to like them. He may just wanted the other guys not to have them. Yeah, I think he liked being able to play other people's alleged exclusive records, though, just to show off that he could get his hands on anything. <laughs> and another thing is, a lot of times, artists would record and then re-record and then re-record and then record somebody else's song. It seems like kind of impossible to trace the origin of a lot of these songs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't think we even know who wrote which songs. I'm sure that a lot of them say that. And we know that, uh, as we'll mention later, Don Drummond wrote a bunch of them. But I don't know how things like that are even credited as far as just who did what. I think Duke Reed and Cox and Dodd and Prince Buster probably took some credit for some things that maybe they didn't need to or probably shouldn't have, not out of disrespect or anything, but because they were probably just doing so much that they either did contribute or they don't even remember who did it. Entirely possible. In 1960, Prince Buster, who'd been working for Dodd, struck out on his own and started a sound system that he dubbed Voice of the People. He wanted music to match the name. What he did was get sounds from Rastafarians, who were 
the people that were treated even worse than the worst people in Jamaican society, lower than the lowest class. But they added African rhythms to the sound. The combined sound of ska and Rasta music has been what we think of often when we think of ska. Well, when we think of good ska, at least. A lot of people, ska fans and otherwise, are fairly familiar with Prince Buster, even if only by name. The real king of first-wave ska, though, is Derek Morgan. Morgan released his debut single in 1959 for Duke Reed, and by 1960, he became the only artist before or since to hold the top seven slots on the National Singles Chart. Morgan got his recording chance by going into Reed's liquor store and singing for him with a store full of customers. Reed recorded that first song, but used it against Dodd instead of releasing it. When Dodd found out who Morgan was, he talked Morgan to cutting a single with him. But Dodd didn't release that single either. He instead played it back at Reed. Morgan then went to Simeon Smith, who ran yet another label, and recorded Hey You Fat Man with Eric Montemore singing backup. Smith did release the song to the public, and it became Morgan's first number one hit. Upon hearing this hit, Duke Reed sent some goons to rough Morgan up for recording somewhere else, but Morgan said he'd go ahead and record for him instead of getting pummeled. It was probably a good choice. The only people that could possibly dispute Morgan's reign was Prince Buster and his fans. Morgan, at one point, had been recording for Buster, but Prince Buster double-crossed him by taking one of Morgan's songs, recording it and presenting it as his own, like we were just talking about. Morgan ended up recording for a while at Beverly's Records with Leslie Kong, who paid twice as much as Buster, or anyone else for that matter, $20 a record versus $10. Prince Buster was enraged by this treason and recorded a nasty response called Blackhead Chinaman. As you are the first blackhead Chinaman I did not Morgan responded with Blazing Fire, which went, went to number one. Back and forth continued with each releasing songs about the other. It got so heated that their fans were fighting each other on the streets. The government had to stop the feud by forcing the two of them to tell their fans to stop the violence. Derek was fine with that, but Prince Buster wasn't quite ready to stop. He had another song ready to release called Derek a Chiny Baby, but Morgan caught wind of it and told Buster that if he kept the feud up and released that song, Morgan would release a song about him fucking Buster's wife while he's out on tour and bringing up questions about the paternity of his children. This stopped Prince Buster. 
for a little bit. And actually, according to an interview with Morgan, like 15 years ago, he said that somebody did eventually give him a tape of Prince Buster putting that song out. He did put the song out. Derek Morgan just didn't know about it. Like he did release it for some people. <laughs> the Derek a Chiney baby. <laughs> I didn't look for that one on the internet. You have to go to the dark webs for that one. <laughs> a lot of these songs have pretty uh, questionable lyrical content. A lot of them are horribly racist, and a lot of them, more of them, are horribly sexist. Which was a lot of music in the 1950s. Yes, yes, absolutely. The biggest musical influence on ska was Jamaican's own Mento, which was the first popular Jamaican music to be recorded specifically for commercial sale. Mento started when Jamaica had slavery, and it was a way for slaves to communicate, as free speech wasn't really an option for them. They would use European and African melodies played through homemade instruments like cowbells, flutes made out of bamboo, animal bones, cow horns, kitchen grates. These instruments evolved through time, becoming rumba boxes, maracas, banjos, bamboo fives, and bamboo saxophones. That music, Mento, was uniquely Jamaican and was an integral part of ska's development. It was the only music played at parties and dances in the 1940s. The other impact of Mento music on ska was that it was in that tradition where singers began the practice of taking on titles of nobility as references to slave owners and also as a way to take power back. Titles like Count, Lord, Prince, King, etc. Lyrically, Mento focused on humorous ways to talk about social and political topics. Mento's often conflated with Calypso, but the biggest difference between the two other than where they originate is with the instruments played. Calypso, which is from Trinidad, doesn't use rumba boxes, bamboo saxophones, banjos, or fiddles, and Mento generally does. Calypso's primary instrument is the steel pan, which isn't in Mento at all. The two styles both came from the same region of Africa, as did other kind of folk music from other islands in the Caribbean, and that area is present-day Nigeria. The sound of ska can first be heard in some American songs that were huge hits in Jamaica, like Fats Domino's Be My Guest and Barbie Gay's My Boy Lollipop. I'm gonna sing, my man gonna play. I'm gonna make you queen for day. Everything's gonna be alright, so be my guest tonight. The songs featured a near-flipping of traditional R&B beats, with emphasis on the second and fourth beats. It sounded a little like the guitar was playing the piano. Jamaicans added their mento sound to the beloved American jazz and R&B to synthesize a unique sound. 
Danceable walking bass lines and the steady, consistent beats allowed for a lot of improvisation by the instrumentalists and the toasters. Prince Buster has been given credit and probably created that credit for a large part of this sound, which he says had a lot to do with Willis Jackson's song Later for the Gator, which we mentioned earlier. And that was Coxone Dodd's number one track. The other song that Buster clearly knew about that added to the sound was Duke Reed's number one track, Hey Hey Mr. Barry. Though only Reed knows who that song was by, and he died with that secret intact. I got two things to say about this. The first is, I'm proud of myself for not making a Mentos Freshmaker joke in there, because I took, took a little bit of restraint. The second thing is, so I was driving with the kids in the car, and he had, we had a ska mix on. It was just, just a song. We'd been listening to it for about half an hour. And uh, my son, in the back seat, just starts going, cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha. He starts toasting, just kind of like compulsively, without even thinking about it, just adding his own thing to the song. It's so much fun to do it. Yeah, Please. yeah, he just, yeah. he loved it. Then he said, Dad, I think we've heard this song before. <laughs> Some of them sound quite quite similar. Um, but <laughs> And but, we don't yeah. touch on toasting in this turntable talk, but we could probably do a, an entire episode on, on toasting and how maybe it led to sort of a lot of hip-hop. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Kind of like beatboxing, too, because in a lot of ways it seems like when they're not actually, you know, singing words, they're making sounds to mimic other instruments, whether it's the drums or the guitar. Yep. So... Uh, it's it's incredible, and a lot of times you you really have to sit and listen and be like that. Does that that can't be a voice? It's perfect. I mean, yeah. When we were together in Atlanta, we drove around just thinking, is it actually a voice on all of these? Some of these sound <laughs> like an instrument. It sounds almost like some kind of maraca at times. While the origins of the sound are fairly traceable, it's much harder to narrow down where the word ska originally came from. We're using a documentary called The Origin of the Word Ska in Heather Augustine's book, Ska and Oral History, as our main sources. The rumors on the internet may appear here, too. It seems that the first time it appeared in print was in March of 1964 by journalist Maureen Cleave. She says the word came to her through Chris Blackwell, whom she spoke with when he arrived from Jamaica selling records out of the back of a mini. This is the origin story that the Oxford English Dictionary uses. Maureen Cleave, by the way, is most famously known for interviewing John Lennon when he said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. On Heather Augustine's website, Foundation Ska, she's found appearances of the word dating back to 1963, but spelled S-C-A. On her website, they have reprintings of four ads for bands playing the use of S-C-A as a descriptor in some way. Another possible origin of the name is that Cox and Dodd used it to mimic the sound of a guitar itself, ska-ska-ska. This origin is backed up by guitarist Ernest Wranglin. Jackie Mitu, 
insisted that the musicians themselves called the rhythm Staya Staya, and that was Byron Lee who introduced the term ska. Another theory is that it evolved from scat singing, which also used the mouth as an instrument often outside of the singing. But we're not finished there. (laughs) Ska might also have come from skavuvi, which was a made-up word that bassist Cluett Johnson used to greet people. He shortened it, and Ska was born. Or was it? Prince Buster has another idea, as he so often does. He is insistent that the word comes from a friend of his they called Scatter, who would yell Ska to get people to scatter and run away from opposing DJ sound systems. According to most etymologists and music historians, the word ska is an onomatopoeia for the sound that the guitar makes. It may, however, fall somewhere slightly in between this and the ska theory. <laughs> I just keep picturing Cluet Johnson like a Kool-Aid man busting through ska <laughs> Your um, homework tomorrow is to go through your whole day, and whenever you say hi to somebody, you say, Ska Skavuvi. <laughs> In the beginning, Ska was seen by many as lowbrow music for the lower-class masses. In uptown Jamaica, they still preferred American jazz and R&B. And it was there, in tourist hotels and clubs, that Jamaican jazz musicians would earn money. In 1962... Jamaica gained its independence from Britain, and ska quickly became the music of independent Jamaica. Eventually, well, fairly quickly, Cox and Dodd realized that the records they were making could make them even more money if he sold them to the people. So he started a record label using his sound system money and called it Studio One. The first recording session for Studio One produced a song called Easy Snappin' by Theo Beckford, and is often considered to be the first recorded ska song ever in Dodd was followed closely by Duke Reed's Treasure Isle Records and Prince Buster's Voice of the People. Coxon was incredibly smart and used students from the nearby Alpha School to form his studio band, which ended up being the Scottalites. The Scottalites were the most talented band Jamaica had ever seen, and they launched the Golden Age of Ska in 1964. And we should say you could read, you know, six or seven different things and you're going to get six or seven different theories on what's the first ska song ever and even like when certain things are recorded. The history is is kind of muddled. I read a moment ago 1956 for something in 1964 and yet there are other places where they'll be like months apart. And that probably has a lot to do with like the scratching off of labels and the not marking things and all that re-recording and but it makes it kind of fun too you can kind of write your own history of it i guess as unlikely as it seems at the heart of the ska movement there was an ultra hip nun at a school for wayward boys 
the Alpha Boys School in Kingston was run by Roman Catholic Sisters of Mercy as a vocational school for students as an alternative to the gang lifestyle in Trenchtown. Originally, the school only had a drum and fife corps, and then, eventually, classical musical instruction. But a young nun named Sister Mary Ignatius Davies, with a passion for blues and jazz, modernized the program and planted the seeds of ska music in a generation of future musicians. Sister Iggy would act as a mentor, playing saxophone with the boys, she'd box with them, play dominoes, send them to buy her records at the store, and most importantly, she ran a sound system for educational purposes during the week, and then to DJ Saturday Dances from her extensive record collection. Her passion and devotion and the opportunities presented by the Alpha School had an incalculable influence on a staggering number of Jamaican musicians, including Deadly Headley Bennett, Theopolis Beckford, Desmond Deckard, and the founding members of the Scatolites, including Tommy McCook, Johnny Dizzy Moore, Lester Sterling, and Don Drummond. The school still operates today, continuing the tradition of producing some of the finest Jamaican musicians. Formed by arranger Jackie Matu in 1964, the Scottalites released their seminal debut album, Ska Authentic, that same year. The band was integral to the career of many ska musicians, including Delroy Wilson, The Wailers, Lee Scratch Perry, and Ken Booth. It was percussionist and singer Lord Tanamo who came up with the band's name. He says, Before they were officially a band... When they were session musicians, they were all together playing at a recording session. The usual practice of payment was for each person to be paid individually by check. But on this day, for some reason, all the money owed went to Lord Tanamo with one check. He immediately said, we should form a band. The other guys asked what the band should be called, and after thinking about it for a few minutes, Tanamo said that, well, there's a craze in America and Russia for these satellites. And there's a craze here for this new ska music. So we'll call it the Scabalites. As with every origin story in ska, this is merely his tale and isn't corroborated by other members of the band who each think that they came up with the name, I'm sure. Lord Tanamo started as a calypso singer making money busking on corners and eventually moving his way up to singing in tourist hotels. But when Ska started, he switched too and caught on with the future Scottalites. Lord Tanamo has one of the most distinctive and graceful voices in Ska. Come down, I'll buy your bum, I'm bright. And leave the next man business, leave it behind. Yes, you don't care what the next man do. Though around for barely two years, the Scottalites may be the quintessential ska band, and it's their sound that people most likely think of when they think of ska's first wave. On New Year's Day in 1965, Don Drummond, who was the creative force of the Scottalites, murdered his girlfriend, Margarita Mahfoud. Drummond was arrested and committed to Kingston's Bellevue Asylum, formerly known as Jamaica Lunatic Asylum. Sounds like a nice place. 
It was here that Drummond was sedated into a state of catatonia and subjected to electroshock therapy. On May 6, 1969, at the age of 37, Drummond died of what was deemed suicide, though there remains a lot of mystery surrounding his death. The lack of an autopsy, along with Mahfoud's gangster ties, keeps this mystery alive. Because his family couldn't afford his burial, it was paid for by Sister Iggy. During the funeral, one story goes that drummer Hugh Malcolm stormed in, tore up the death certificate, and demanded that the burial be stopped until after the post-mortem results have been released. He claimed to have knowledge that Drummond was beaten to death by four people at Bellevue. Drummond may have composed more ska songs than any other musician during ska's first wave in the 1960s, with over 300. Drummond was a founding member of the Scottalites. Prior to ska, Drummond was a music teacher at the Alpha Boys School, where Sister Iggy called him the most talented musician in Jamaica. Two of the Scottalite songs that Drummond wrote, Guns of Navarone and Man in the Street, were top 10 hits in the UK in 1965. But by then, the band had broken up, and Drummond's life took a devastating turn. Cuban-born Scottalite saxophonist Tommy McCook was essential to adding jazz to ska. His love of John Coltrane and prolific recording appearances on many early ska recordings with Clue J and the Blasters, Jazz Jamaica, the Scottalites, and eventually the Supersonics, who were another integral backing band of the era. McCook recorded with seemingly everyone throughout the 60s and 70s, including Jimmy Cliff, Bunny Lee, and the Revolutionaires. Here's an oddity from McCook's later Studio One years with the Brentford All-Stars called Jamaica Bolero. Roland Alfonso is another Cuban-born saxophonist that made the rounds before landing in the Scottalites. A circuit multi-instrumentalist, Alfonso made a name for himself as part of a stage comedy duo, Bim and Bam, and for his rollicking cover of Louis Prima's Robin Hood. Both Dodd and Reed used him regularly in backing bands, and he eventually was also a member of Clue J and his Blue Blasters and in a measurable number of other bands before landing in the Scottalites, all while pioneering the ska sound of clipped Jamaican rhythms married to smooth R&B sounds. He went on to form the Soul Brothers, who became the Soul Vendors, with an ear for keeping up with contemporary trends in his arrangements. His arrangement work would provide him work for the next generation of stars, including Bob Marley and the Wailers. A legend of Jamaican music, he was awarded Officer of Order Distinction by the Jamaican government. Now we'll drop his scorching song, 
nuclear weapon. The Scottalites, or what was left of them, set sail for England in hopes of making some money playing ska. Prior to the Scottalites heading for England, other musicians had already made the trek, most notably Prince Buster. When artists and bands first got to London, they were surprised by the terribly old-fashioned music being celebrated and not being allowed to play in any of the jazz clubs, what with them being black and all. That led to parties and clubs in the West End, which like where they'd played in Jamaica, was where those who were deemed low class would come out to dance and party. And that's where Island and Bluebeat records come in. A Jamaican-born, wealthy English kid named Chris Blackwell realized the power of a label when he would go to New York City to buy any R&B music from Atlantic Records, knowing that it would be high-caliber stuff. He would return home, scratch off the label, and sell the records to sound system operators at massively marked up prices. He realized there was a huge potential to make money in making Jamaican records, so he started a label called R&B, possibly predating both Dodd and Reed. He finally settled on Island Records, named after a Harry Belafonte tune, Island in the Sun, and put out a jazz record called Lance Hayward at the Half Moon which was a huge hit. He then borrowed some money and worked with two other influential men in the scene, Australian record engineer Graham Goodall and Chinese Jamaican producer Leslie Kong, and they started churning out records. After Jamaican independence and the rise of other labels, Blackwell returned to England with a bunch of leased ska music in tow. Ironically, his first English-released Island 45 was the swinging... Independent Jamaica by Lord Creator. So let us live in unity for progress and prosperity. Let's go! Independent Jamaica! As we mentioned before, he would sell his records out of the back of his Mini Cooper, driving around the UK to hit Jamaican and other West Indies communities. In 1964, Blackwell finally set out to prove that ska could have a substantial impact on record sales in Britain. He recorded Millie Small's version of My Boy Lollipop, and it was a massive, massive success. And it sent a message back to Jamaica that ska music can bring money and fame. It was this song that really pushed ska to be recognized in Jamaica outside of just the slums of downtown. It was now becoming noticed by the rich people in Uptown. Island Records, of course, grew by leaps and bounds, becoming one of the world's biggest and best labels, but is always tied to the Jamaican roots. Though Island is generally known as the label that popularized the ska sound outside of Jamaica, 
Truly, it was a small British record label called Bluebeat that was just as crucial for making ska mainstream in England. The label was founded in 1960 by Siggy Jackson as an offshoot of Mellow Disc Records. The owner of Mellow Disc, Emil Shallot, would fly to Jamaica and walk the streets with a giant red suitcase labeled Danger High Explosives, full of money to grab the rights for songs. Shallot would procure rights from Duke Reed, Cox and Dodd, and other major producers to distribute their music in the UK, and he would hand them over to Jackson to be released. Jackson marketed this new sound as Blue Beat, as he thought it sounded like blues with a great beat. The label started releasing records by the biggest names in ska, including Derek Morgan, Prince Buster, Eric Monty Morris, Joe Higgs, Delroy Wilson, and others. The Prince Buster-produced single, O Carolina, under the name The Folks Brothers, would end up being Blue Beat's first major record. Prince Buster would continue to be the label's biggest star and provide the label's only charting crossover hit, Al Capone. The label would bring over stars to record and play live, and a heated rivalry brewed between Bluebeat and Island, who often would undermine each other to sign artists. Originally, the label was mostly popular with West Indies expats, but then expanded to appealing to the nightclubbers and skinheads so much so that the name Bluebeat became synonymous with ska, in England. In 1967, Rocksteady was overtaking Ska, and the label eventually stopped output and morphed into Fab Records. Shallot and Jackson both accused each other of stealing from the label. Indications were that each might have had their hand in the till, and Jackson left for EMI and formed Columbia Big Beat that was more focused on British-made reggae stuff like this, The Bees, Jesse James Rides Again. Jesse James! Rides again! We're going to take a quick break here, and when we get back, we will go over a few of the craziest legends and several of our favorite lesser-known artists from the first wave of ska. Uh, We might even go back over and give you several more possible, but completely false, explanations of the origin of the term ska. Who knows? As poverty spread through downtown Kingston in 1966, crime increased to the point of near lawlessness, and music reflected the times, as it tends to do elsewhere. The music slowed down and turned into rock steady. Gangsters ruled the streets, and they took on the moniker of Rude Boys. The situation in Jamaica was grim, and artists started talking to Rudies in their songs. Prince Buster had a trio of singles, dubbed the Judge Dredd Singles, where he commented on their behavior in what might be the most well-known ska song, Rudy, A Message to You. Songwriter Dandy Livingston told the delinquents to stop your messing around. Stop your running about 
time you straighten right out Stop you running around Making trouble in the town Ah, oh, Rudy A message to you, Rudy One of the scariest rude boys named Busby approached Derek Morgan one day to write a song about him. He'd heard other singers singing about Rude Boys, and he wanted a song of his own. Morgan had pretty much no choice, especially since he had a gun and knife pointed at him. He was given three days to write a song, and he did. He came back with Rudy's Don't Fear, and luckily, Busby loved it. He had it played for him all night long, and on the next day, Busby was killed. In 1964, after meeting Muhammad Ali and converting to Islam, Prince Buster changed his legal name to Yusuf Muhammad Ali, though he kept his stage name and that's what everybody always called him. He also took up boxing, claiming he always wanted to be a boxer, but there was no money in it, so he switched to music. Prior to his first bout, he penned a poem predicting the outcome of the fight, and it went a little something like this. I, Mighty Prince Buster, Muhammad I... Predict my first fight will end in the first. When the gong sounds for the first round, my opponent will already be on the ground. I have no time for fooling around. There must be better herring around. (laughs) Chiny, chiny, china man. (laughs) Somehow, Buster won the fight with a knockout in the first after a couple light jabs to the opponent's midsection. The purse, however, was held back until a proper investigation could take place and Prince Buster's professional boxing career was over after one fight. Desmond Decker single-handedly put Ska into the consciousness of Americans with his 1968 grooving Exodus lament, The Israelites, which stormed up the charts. His influence and power was far greater in Britain and his homeland than it was in America. The orphan-turned-wilder named Desmond Dacre was passed over by both Duke Reed and Cox and Dodd before signing on with Leslie Kong, who proved a critical mentor and champion throughout his career. Dacray changed his name and hooked up with some singing siblings who called themselves the Aces. Together, they put out a string of religious and morality-tinged singles and became huge on the island. His rude boy anthem, 007 Shantytown, propelled him to stardom in the U.K., and that was just before Israelites became an international smash. He continued to be a hit maker throughout the 70s and eventually signed with punk label Stiff, where he released a fun, raucous two-tone album backed by Graham Parker's backing band, The Rumor. And he called it, get ready for it, Black and Decker. Here's the 1969 Rocksteady-ish ode to civility, temperance, and hugging it out, called Keep a Cool Head. With lots of weed and a few have to concentrate. Do not try and cut this spirit away, no sir. Do not get upsterical, can you work a miracle? One of my favorite songs ever. Oh, so good. Recording over 70 singles between 64 and 66, vocalist 
Justin Hines, along with his backing band The Dominoes, were workhorses for Duke Reed and one of Treasure Isle's most popular artists. Carry Go, Bring Come, recorded in one take, is recognized as one of the classics of the ska era, and later covered by Selector and Desmond Decker with the specials. However, we're going to play a song that we think is its equal called Over the River. The Gay Lads sported some of the finest harmonies and regularly were the backing vocalists for Studio One recordings. Harris B.B. Seaton, Winston Delano Stewart, and Maurice Roberts made up the original trio that really came into their own when the frenzied pace of ska slowed down to the slow burn of rock steady, where they could truly showcase the complexities of their interwoven singing. Here's a fantastic Motown-influenced impassioned plea to a former lover called... Stop making love. The man known as the godfather of ska was singing mento for tourists years before ska broke big. Laurel Aiken started his music career by singing songs at Kingston Harbor for the Jamaican Tourism Board. In the 1950s, he skirted the line between boogie-woogie, R&B, and what would become ska music. His 1958 song, Little Sheila, was one of the first songs recorded by Chris Blackwell for his pre-island label R&B Records and the first Jamaican music released in the UK. Older and always a little ahead of the curve, Aiken traveled to the UK to carve out a career recording for Bluebeat in 1960. He would go back and forth between the UK and his homeland, cementing his legendary status. Interestingly, he also would do some talk-over DJ vocal work as King Horror on tunes like this Loch Ness Monster with campy caterwauling that would make Screamin' Jay proud. Loch Ness Monster
can be dangerous. The Ethiopians were critical in the early development of inclusion of socially conscious themes that would be the eventual hallmark of the reggae era. The band was started when Leonard Dillon found the street corner singers, Stephen Tufcock Taylor, and Aston Charlie Morrison. Peter Tosh got the group an addition for Studio One, who put out early recordings under the name Jack Sparrow. As Dylan became entrenched in the Rastafari religion, he changed the band name to The Ethiopians. The band would record prolifically, switching between labels, producers, and even band members at a fevered pace. Trained to Scaville, choo-chooed its way into the hearts of British kids and remains one of their most famous hits among an outrageously enormous catalog. The Whalers, who are unfortunately known mostly as a backing band for you-know-who, started in 1963 as an amazing ska band with the Jackson High vocals of Junior Braithwaite. The band went through a few names like the Teenagers, the Wailing Rude Boys, the Wailing Whalers, before finally settling on just the Whalers. They worked with Lee Scratch Perry and the Scottalites and had a string of solid groups. The original lineup broke down in 1964 due to Peter Tosh and Neville Livingston's, who's Bunny Whaler, refusal to play freak clubs on religious grounds, and eventually morphed into reggae's flag bearers, sadly taking away from some of the influence of their jilted early bandmates. Here's their addictive hit, Habits. Another key name to know, and an unforgettable name at that, was Baba Brooks. Baba was a trumpet player who began his career in the 1950s with a big band jazz group. By the 60s, there was basically only one big band left, and that was Byron Lee's Dragonairs. And by then, Baba Brooks was playing with them, while also finding steady work as a session guy. Brooks' rave-up instrumentals soon became hits themselves, and he recorded for virtually every ska label. One of our favorites is the perfectly jumpy tune named Duck Soup.
Baba was one of a huge list of artists that recorded for one of the most important women in ska history, Sonia Pottinger. Pottinger ran her own labels, Tip Top, Gay Feet, and High Note, and was the first female record producer in Jamaica. In the notoriously cutthroat ska production world, Pottinger thrived by using her charm and wit to provide a sanctuary for artists that were disenfranchised with rivalry and nastiness in the business. She, of course, would use the same sort of nefarious practices to unfairly cut herself into the profits of her artist. When Duke Reed died, there was a battle over the purchase of Reed's Treasure Island catalog and operations. It was between Pottinger, Cox and Dodd, and Reed's son, Bunny Lee. Pottinger ended up with it, but passed away less than a year after. Some of the best ska records of all time were produced by Pottinger, including Down by the Train Line by Stranger and Patsy, Hard to Confess by the Gay Lads, Trained to Glory by the Ethiopians, and this cut, for those of us who love the sound of breaking glass, Target by the Gay Tones. Todd seemed to have two ska careers in only a few short years. The first was as a duet partner of Derek Morgan, and the second, singing with Stranger Cole. Patsy Todd grew up in West Kingston, right next door to Prince Buster. It was Patsy's mother who got her singing career started by blindly approaching Derek Morgan in the street one day to tell him that her daughter was a great singer and that he should check her out. So, one day, Derek Morgan goes to Patsy's house and knocks on the door. When the 15-year-old Patsy answers, Morgan says, I'm Derek Morgan. Patsy says, so, having never heard of him. He convinces her to sing something for him, but she was hesitant. Then he says he has a song about what a jackass Eric Monty Morris is. Patsy dislikes Morris too, so she says, well, I'd be happy to record that with you. Morris, by the way, was a very close friend of Morgan's when they started out, with Morris even singing backup on Morgan's first recording, as we mentioned earlier. And we'll be talking about him again a little later in the show. Derek and Patsy go to Duke Reed's studio and cut Love Not to Brag. Well, this morning As the song finishes, Reed pulls out a 45 and starts shooting up the place. Patsy <laughs> tries to bolt for the door, terrified, but Morgan stops her, saying, no, 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 that's a good thing. It means he likes it. It's like Yosemite Sam. 
Derek and Patsy became stars in Jamaica and in the UK where Island was selling their singles. They had a few hits, but are most known for a song called Housewife's Choice. that song that's such a good song that wasn't even the original title but when people would call into djs they didn't know what the title was and one dj in particular just noticed that it seemed like it was always housewives calling in so he renamed it to housewives choice (laughs) that's great (laughs) yeah it's it's funny because i think one thing that kind of comes through with all this is it was really a pretty small community i think we looked it up and kingston only had like what sixty-five thousand people like in the you know, late 50s, early 60s. So it wasn't this giant place. And they all seemed to kind of know each other. Yeah, and the studios were really close to each other. Like Leslie Kong's, well, liquor store studio was only a few doors down from Prince Buster's. And they were all very close to each other from what I was able to find out. Derek Morgan went to England to try to become a hit over there as others had. And while he was gone... Patsy was approached by Stranger Cole to sing with him. Stranger also went to her house, and she told him that she had no interest in singing with him at all. Stranger begged, telling her that he was trying to get his big break. But when he went to Duke Reed's studio, Reed said he'd only record him if he could get Patsy to sing with him. Stranger Cole was desperate and charming, and Patsy finally relented, just to help him with his career. When Derek Morgan found out that she'd recorded with someone else, he flat out stopped talking to her. He never asked what the story was. He just refused to speak with her for about 40 years, (laughs) even though he had been recording with other female singers the whole time. Stranger and Patsy set out to have hit after hit, with their biggest and my favorite being When I Call Your Name, which we'll be talking about also a little bit later. As if the outright joyous sound wasn't enough, ska is a particularly fun topic for us to cover because while the music is rooted in real human drama, so much of it seems apocryphal. History is so much more fascinating when there's no agreed-upon truth. So many legendary characters who made sure they wrote their own stories, all while casting doubt upon the stories of their rivals. As with the other genre episodes we've had, this could easily continue on into more and more episodes. We may even go further into ska at some point, digging up more information about lesser-known artists and producers, clubs and events, and especially more about the few women who were incredibly powerful within the genre. That could and should be an episode all on its own. We could also go into the future and look at two-tone and the English movement that really was kind of a post-punk adjacent music. For now, though, we think we've covered a lot of the people we were most curious about, along with a lot that we'd never even heard of before. 
Ska simply has a sound that's nearly impossible to dislike. Much like yeah yeah music or western swing, it sounds like summer spent without responsibilities. And we're not ready for that summer to end. Since we started researching this a couple months ago, did you pick up any ska records? I'm going to play a song later from a, a pretty cool Jamaican ska comp called Club Ska 67. And I guess I did get one. Uh, it's more reggae, but it is by Trojan that I'm also going to play later. But it's not easy to find ska music just even in record stores. There's just not a ton of it. There's some cool compilations, uh, but they tend to be from from England and they tend to be really expensive and I just don't know don't always know which one I should pick up. Yeah, the originals if you look on Discogs, a lot of the 45s are really expensive and in really bad shape. Luckily there are a lot of compilations out there, but there are still probably a thousand songs that are going to be really hard to find if you can find them at all because they're not appearing on compilations and they may not even be on 7-inch anymore. I wish they would release some of those blue beat stuff. Like the guy, the the guy from Bluebeat just has them all locked up, and he just doesn't have the the energy to. The, well, I think he's been so burned out by the music industry, which it sounds like it was a lot of drama. Honestly, <laughs> I hope a lot of that stuff gets released because I think that's some really high quality stuff that's just not out there. Yeah, I've been able to find and hear a lot of it. A lot of the singles, they're great. They really covered a lot of time like 60 to 64 or 65 and it's it's hundreds and hundreds of songs now talk to me about like trojan records so how because uh, they didn't come along till later but didn't they buy a lot of rights trojan was sort of a, a subsidiary of island in a way island was like the umbrella and it started as a way for island to show a lot of duke reed productions so I think that was like 67 or around there. And it only lasted a few months. It didn't really do very well. So it kind of died off. And then there was no Trojan Records anymore. But a couple years later, it might have been 70, 71, that Trojan came back and they did it again. But instead of just focusing on Duke Reed, which they still did, they focused on also putting out singles from other smaller record labels like Sonia Pottinger's. Island was kind of overseeing all of it, but they would put out collections by a lot of the DJs or a lot of the record labels individually. It seems like, you know, at Rocker Store Day or all different stuff, you see all those Trojan comps, and it's hard to know which ones are rock steady or which ones are reggae or which ones are more ska sometimes. It's really hard, yeah. So rock steady sort of took over around 67-ish, and then ska just kind of died off. Well, one thing... I think we were talking about when we were going through all this is like, I really wish, and maybe somebody out there has a connection or is a writer, but I would love to see like an HBO drama about the rise of ska because it's just, there's just so much kind of rivalry and nastiness and so many characters and so much, it is a little bit like a Game of Thrones of music. I was thinking Deadwood, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, Deadwood, yeah. There's just so much conflict and but it's so much fun too and so many good stories and the backstory to me is just so much more fascinating than say like glam rock or something. It just, just has more of a history to it, I guess. Yeah, and it seemed like there was a lot more at stake. 
Like people weren't being knifed and shot for glam rock as often, if at all. <laughs> a glitter knife. I, I think I think people were beat up for wearing makeup or expressing homosexuality or bisexuality or whatever it may have been. Oh, absolutely. Um, but with ska, it was pretty ferocious. Like guns, knives, bullets. Like the government had to come in and force two musicians to shake hands in front of everybody and tell their fans to stop killing each other and beating each other up. It's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. But the music's so much fun. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And uh, there's a lot that is sort of embarrassing. If you look back on it now, like all of the, we mentioned this earlier, but the sexist stuff is just, some of it's just really gross and laughably bad. It's, you, you have to do a little bit of curating and sorting through because a lot of it is just kind of, I mean, they were just producing so much of it, you know, but when they hit, when you hit the, get those great songs, man, they're so good. Oh, and one other thing that you mentioned that I think we should talk about real quick is you played me a song and it, it had more of like a country type feel. And you said, it sounds a lot like Western swing. And it hit me that like a lot of it really does kind of sound like that Western swing really Sounds a lot like ska. Yeah. You know, that, that that influence of jazz. And they even had toasters, like Bob Wills could really be, was basically a toaster. Uh, just kind of, yee-haw, doing all the, go Tommy, go, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff in the background. <laughs> and yeah, and it all came from a lot of the same stuff. Like, it all came from American jazz. Obviously, there was more country music in there, but really, their job was to get people dancing and the people playing in the bands were jazz musicians. So there's a lot of similarity, and I've never heard anybody mention it, but it just seemed to really kind of hit me with a couple songs. It's very interesting that I haven't seen any correlation between the two, but really they do seem to have come from some of the same stock. Like, obviously, they have their own stuff. Like, Ska has Mento, and Western Swing has more honky-tonk and country stuff, but the jazz stuff is just the way they play seems very similar. Yeah, it's mind blowing. You just kind of bring in those that jazz element and make it make it more dancey, and it's just like it just morphs. Yeah, and and kind of like they sound alike. Like if you close your eyes, you're for a moment you're not sure what you're listening to, and they sound really really good back to back. Yep. All right, you ready to play some songs? Of course. First song I'm going to play is a song called Phoenix City by Roland Alfonso, who we mentioned in the show. Phoenix City!
Phoenix-City. All right, that was Roland Alfonso with a song called Phoenix City. And I have that on a compilation called Club Ska 67 uh, on a label I think is just WIRL. It's a Jamaican label. And Phoenix City is by Roland Alfonso and the Soul Brothers. And it was from 66. We talked a little bit about him in the episode, but I think that's just one of those classic ska sounding songs and just... I just love it. You know, it's it's just a perfect little dance number. So don't have much to say about it, but I do like that song. My first song is a song we talked about earlier. It is Stranger and Patsy with When You Call My Name. When I call you. Oh, 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 
All right, that was Stranger and Patsy with When You Call My Name. Probably from around, I, it says 1970, but I think it was earlier than that. The copy that I have, I actually, this is like the only one of two actual like Jamaican singles I have. This is, mine's on Treasure Isle. And it is the B-side to Stranger Cole's song, Rough and Tough. It's one of the biggest hits that they had, if not the biggest hit. I think it's right up there with Stranger and Patsy, and we talked a lot about it already. It's one of my favorite songs. It's one of the first ska songs that I ever heard, and I still love it to this day. Um, The other one that I absolutely love but I can't find is Prince Buster's version of My Girl, the temptation song i think um Hmm. it's it's that's pretty great too anyway we talked a lot about this song already and i just wanted everybody to hear it i know we were going to play a clip but i wanted to play a clip that lasted about three minutes (laughs) my next song is by eric monte morris and the song is called little district A little district on a neighborhood People moving swift like they think they should A word from your mouth, your light can go out A glass to your lips, and later you shift Just live, and if you have to just give No one asks no question, no one tells no lie Listen while I tell you what's the reason why A word from your mouth, your light can go out A glass to your lips, and later you shift Just live, and if you have to just give I don't know how they manage Believe me, people they do If you ever live here In a little district on a neighborhood People moving swift like they think they should A word from your mouth, your light can go out A glass to your lips and later you shift Just live and if you have to just give Just live. 
All right, that was Eric Bonnie Morris with a song called Little District from 1964 on Rio Records, and it was produced by King Edwards. And I have it on a King Edwards compilation called Scavolution, which was released in 1988, but it's all songs that he produced from mostly 1964, but a couple from 1965 as well. And on this song, Eric Monty Morris, it's just weird to say that whole thing, on this song, Morris is backed by a band called the Upcoming Willows, who are Tommy McCook, Baba Brooks, Jackie Matu, and, well, the rest of the Scottalites. I guess they just went by a different name in different studios, which is crazy. Eric Morris is one of the most important artists in Ska's first wave, and I just don't know why more people didn't don't know about him or talk about him. If I didn't know anything about him. He started out, along with Derek Morgan, competing in talent shows in the 50s. And his first recording, as we mentioned also earlier, was with Derek Morgan's first recording, his singing backup. He's one of my favorite ska vocals, and, and like I just said, I didn't even know his name before we started researching a few months ago. He had a, a number one hit in 1961 with a song called Humpty Dumpty, and I think he had a couple other like nursery rhyme type songs. And he was part of a group of Jamaican singers who performed at the 1964 World's Fair in New York hmm. with Millie Small, Jimmy Cliff, Prince Buster, and Byron Lee. And if you've ever seen Jim Jarmusch's Coffee and Cigarettes, which you probably have, you've heard his song, Enabella. It plays in the background of the trailer. It plays in the background of, this, uh, of the movie itself. So go back and watch it. That's always worth it. And then you'll hear a really cool song called Enabella by Eric Monty Morse. All right, I'll play my last song. It is by Derek Morgan, who we've covered quite a bit in the episode, and the song is Mon Pon Moon.
Pond Moon by Derek Morgan, backed by the Rudies. That was a Crab single, 1969. It's uh, pretty much straight reggae, and and I have it on a comp that just came out this year, but it's pretty great. It's called uh, the Do the Moonwalk. Trojan Records put it out for the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. It's basically space reggae, which is great. What I really like about this song is the guitar is super crunchy like garage rock guitars and i think that sound with with the the reggae groove just makes for a fantastic song which i really enjoy and you should definitely check out that do the moonwalk comp if i'm being honest it's not straight ska or anything it's more reggae songs though some kind of dip back and forth a little bit but it's it's worth your time for sure all right well are you ready to finish off the audio quiz. Ready, willing, and able. All right. So I am going to play these seven clips one more time. They're all ska, rock, steady, reggae covers of popular pop songs. All I need from you is to name the song title and the original artist. So here we go. Okay. Track one. In the little tent Track two. Now I'm through with romance. I'm through with loving. I'm through with counting the stars above. And there's no reason why I'm so free. Track three. Track four. Seven. The money seems good and your life. 
All right, what do you got? All right, the first song is A Change Is Going To Come, originally by Sam Cooke, I think. It is. Do you know who is singing this version? Oh, no, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. You weren't. I just thought I'd ask. (sighs) I didn't recognize the voice. That one is Prince Buster. Okay, that's who who I was going to guess, but just because I know he sang so much, it seems like what he would sing. Yeah, yep. The second song... I think it's Bye Bye Love, originally by the Everly Brothers. Correct. This version was by Alton Ellis. Okay, cool. The third one, I did not get. It is Don't Play That Song, originally by Benny King. This version was Derek Morgan. Okay, 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 cool. Fourth one, I don't know. I thought it was maybe like a Beatles song or something like that. I don't know. It is. Well, you're close. It's one of the, it's a solo. Ooh. I don't know. Give Peace a Chance. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, it rang out as Beatles, but I couldn't, I couldn't nail it. If I had played any other second of it, you would have gotten it. It's, it's really hard to find a clip with that one. That's, that was a Toots and the Beatles one. I think it's like a seven minute version. And the background singer's just throughout the whole thing, except for that little piece, are always saying, give peace a chance, the whole way through. <laughs> it seems like a good song for that format. It's fun, yeah. Yep. Uh, the fifth one is Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, originally by Dylan. It was a Jimmy Cliff version, yep. Okay, cool. I did not get the sixth one, and I, I don't feel like I get, came close. This was a really tough one. It's Rainy Night in Georgia, originally by mm. Tony Joe White, and this is by Lord Tanamo. Yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't, I wasn't getting anything on there, and the last one I think is Guns of Brixton, originally by The Clash. Yep, and that's a that's Jimmy Cliff again. Okay, that's kind of cool that he covered that. Must have been a little bit later. He put out an EP of cover songs, and Hard Rain's Gonna Fall is on there. Guns of Brixton, and yeah, it's it's pretty good. I like his voice a lot. Absolutely. All right, well, that about wraps it up for our Scott episode. Uh, We truly appreciate everybody who's listening, and uh, if you're new to us, we appreciate you sticking through (laughs) to this long. We tend to sometimes get off on topics, we make kind of long episodes, but we just can't stop including stuff, and I think we're afraid to miss a clip that we really love or anything like that. But but we we appreciate you listening, and and, uh, we certainly are excited to hopefully be bringing on some new listeners. We always like to talk about the importance of supporting musicians, record stores, record labels, especially independent ones. So, you know, you have a choice of how to spend your money with music, but please go out and support people who are working hard to make a living off getting you music you love. And as we've kind of learned as talking to more people, there's a lot of people involved in the record industry and there's people involved in the you know, all throughout the chain that you don't think about, and they all are working hard to make a great product. So please support them all. We have social media. Yeah, we have a Twitter feed, and our handle there is at Highway Hi-Fi Pod. We have an Instagram that I think you've been updating an awful lot lately, which is awesome, and we're getting a lot of good response to that. That's same handle, I believe. And we have a Facebook page, which is pretty easy to find. 
And our email is podcast at gmail.com. And I want to thank Kindercore again for that last episode. They really, it was really amazing to hang out with them. Yeah, a record pressing plant is just the coolest place. You have no idea until you actually go in and see it. So, but more than that, they were just incredibly nice people and uh, real gracious. So, we got a lot of people to thank. We got to thank them. And I think we already thanked uh, Morris, but definitely want to thank the good people at Pantheon uh, Music Network for taking us on and, and giving us a chance. I think more than anything, it just, meant a lot to us that people out there think what we're doing is worthy enough and unique enough to, you know, go into some really well-made high quality podcast. And they at least think we've got, we've got promise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see. (laughs) Pulled the wool over their eyes. (laughs) It's like not too many podcasts to go into depth into, you know, tiny Tim's sexual misadventures and, John Fahey's love of turtles and stuff like that. But we appreciate you. If you're the type of person that cares about that, you found the right place. We go where no one else dares. <laughs> this is this is true. This is true. All right. We will see you next time. Get so excited about saying tough cock. <laughs> you're laughing at Ethiopians now? You make a leukemia joke and now you're laughing at Ethiopians. Okay. Hi, I'm Shelley Sorensen, the rock and roll librarian. And I'm Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist. I love books, especially books about rock and roll musicians. Oh, yes, you do, Shelley. I'm living vicariously because I've always wanted to be one myself. Uh, well, doesn't everybody? Hmm, I don't know, but those who don't are certainly intrigued by musicians' lives and how they followed their dreams. Well, then they should listen to our show, huh? Yes. On this podcast, we discuss one of the books I have read. But I purposely don't to keep it interesting and fresh for everyone. Our conversations are peppered with snippets of songs from the artist's repertoire, as well as music that has inspired and influenced each of them. The Rock and Roll Librarian Show is a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Look for us wherever you find great podcasts. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 